You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 3rd of November. And as an Indian billionaire suggests that young people in his country should work a 70-hour week for the sake of that country, we asked how long are you willing to work each week? Recruitment expert Toby Simpson and workplace culture consultant Lucy Darbo debated hours and productivity. Plus, we talked about artificial intelligence. That's after 28 countries and several tech companies agreed to work together to ensure that the tech doesn't prove a catastrophic risk to humanity. And that phrase is theirs, not mine. Now, we discussed the so-called Bletchley Declaration and what Elon Musk has to say about it with two AI experts, Professor Toby Walsh, the author of Machines Behaving Badly, and Dr. Caitlin Bentley, who's a lecturer in AI education. Meanwhile, the UAE's introduced a new savings scheme that will impact anyone who's due to get a gratuity once they leave their job. But is it a good option? We found out with Steve Cronin from Dead Simple Saving. And we also spoke to a musicologist about what's being billed as the Beatles' last song. Professor Joe Bennett gave us his views. And Chris McCarty joined us with all the latest sporting headlines, including news of the Cricket World Cup and his hopes and fears for Man U this weekend. Friday morning. And there is fascinating news coming out of India this week. It's gone viral. Uh, I love a story that goes viral. And it's got everyone talking. And the subject is how many hours we should be working each week. That is after Indian billionaire N.R. Narayana Murthy suggested that young people should be ready to work 70, ta- 70 hours a week to help the country's development. Have a listen. Somehow our youth have the habit of taking not so desirable habits from the West and then not helping the country. So therefore, my request is that our youngsters must say, this is my country. I want to work 70 hours a week. For the first time, India has received certain respect. This is the time for us to consolidate and accelerate the progress. And for doing that, we need to work very hard. We need to be disciplined and improve our work productivity. What do you think of it? Get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me, 04871 Lots of people on social media in India are debating toxic work cultures. There's talk of low salaries. There's talk of burnout. And questions are being raised as to whether long hours actually result in greater productivity. The thinking on that does seem to be changing. But like I say, I'd love to hear from you, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me, 04871 How many hours a week do you work? Is it enough? Is it too much? Love to get your views. We're going to speak to two experts as well. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by Toby Simpson, who is the CEO of the recruitment firm Striver. We've also got joining us on Teams, Lucy Darbo, who is CEO at the Workplace Culture Consultancy Together. 
Guys, good to have you both with us. Thank you very much indeed. Lucy remotely, Toby in the studio. Uh, It's going to be a really fun discussion because I know you both come from ever so slightly different uh, (laughs) positions, I think it's fair to say. Um, Okay, so uh, Toby, let's start with you. Do we have a culture, do you think, of working long hours here in the UAE already? Have we already basically taken Mr. Murty's advice? Well, I think it depends if you compare it to India, in which case absolutely not, or perhaps the countries that Mr. Murty was referring to, those decadent Western lazy bones in, uh, in the UK and France and elsewhere. So I think we probably do work, you know, we are a bit more thrusting and dynamic here than we are in the, the kind of uh, older economies of, of, of the EU, for, for example. But no, I, I'd like to think it's a relatively healthy balance here. We'll, we'll, we'll see what Lucy has to say. Yeah, what does Lucy have to say? Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Um, On this occasion, Toby, I do agree with you, actually. I think um, we are a hardworking country because we're still considered emerging, very entrepreneurial and quite fast paced. But I absolutely hope that it isn't a mainstay that people are working 70 hours a week. Why is that, Lucy? What is wrong with working a, a long working week? Oddly enough, we were talking about it on the bre- business breakfast a little earlier. Uh, Richard reckons he does, oh, what number did he give me? I think it was 60 hours. Brandy basically couldn't tell me when she stopped working except when she was asleep. <laughs> uh, and I think I probably do about 70. Uh, but I love my job. So it's slightly different. Uh, so, you know, what is the sort of good working week in your view? I think there's a great Simon Sinek quote, actually, um, and I might forgive me if I'm not 100% accurate, but it's like uh, doing something you're not passionate about and working hard at it is called stress. Doing working hard at something you're passionate about is called purpose. And there's that real differentiation. And I think those examples of Richard and Brandy and yourself, you are in a field and a job that you love and you're truly passionate about and you have great purpose to share with the wider community news, topics, opinions. So I think it does depend on what you do and whether you're really inspired, connected and inspired to do it because 70 hours of something that you're absolutely passionate about will fly by. But doing 70 hours of a a monotonous, uninspiring, disinteresting task would be hard for anyone. Yeah, and I have to say, I think, uh, Toby, that is probably why people have come out with such antipathy towards these comments from Mr. Murphy. The fact that he's a a billionaire also makes it even more stinging, I suppose. If you are, you know, if you're a a, a labourer, if you're working outside, if you're doing anything that involves hard labour, the idea of doing that for 70 hours a week is, you know, both physically and mentally oppressive. Absolutely. And the, and the labourers in India may well have a, a bugbear. The, the number of millionaires in India is expected to double between now and 2026. But we're not going to see anywhere near the, the, that rise in terms of, of real wages. So, yeah, look, and so I, I think Mr. Murty was trying to make a different point and maybe slipped up on this point because, the, the, you know, the very concept of productivity is its output, basically revenue against how much input goes into that made up of capital and labour. So if you increase labour, necessarily your productivity will go down because you can't expect the same amount of return. And if you look at the, you know, the, the charts of countries that work fewer, uh, fewer hours, their productivity is higher. It doesn't mean their output is higher. He's right to say that the GDP of India would increase if everybody worked 70 hours a week. But a, an increase in increasing, well, decreasing returns on the amount of effort put in. So I think he's got to a point where 
you know, gentlemen of a certain age, we have a habit of, of you know, shaking our fists at, at youth. Uh, you know, we have a burning desire to, uh, you know, to talk about kids these days and, and uh, you know, in my day, that sort of thing. And I think maybe Mr. Murty has fallen foul of that, uh, that, that you know, sort of uh, gentleman's instinct of a certain age. Yeah, Lucy, do you think that attitudes are changing among young people, for example? Do you think that maybe Mr. Murty has, has put his finger on the pulse of, of, of a changing mood and it's bugging him? Very much so. Uh, by 2025, a third of the working population will be in the, you know, uh, the millennials, if you like. So we have this imminent onslaught of a much younger generation coming into the workplace and their desires are fundamentally different. They have not grown up in this world of the traditional work long hours at the same thing for many, many years. They are much more interested around purpose. Is there meaning in what I do? Will I impact the world positively or negatively? How flexible is the workplace going to be for me and my other needs? Because work is part of my life, but it's not the reason I get up every single day. And third of all for them is around collaboration. They really want to be able to work collectively, not in this sort of single-minded, one type of task-oriented work. So the shift is coming, whether people like Narayana like it or not. And actually, it's really about now, as leaders, um, how can we best adapt the workplace to ensure that all the multi-generational generations that work together can be as productive as possible with the most effective outcomes. And that is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Can I ask a, a little bit of a sort of testy question? Is it possible that these millennials just haven't reached the point where they need to pay for school fees yet? Because often the amount you work corresponds with the amount you earn. And while it's lovely to be able to do something that you, you know, gives you a sense of purpose, ultimately, once you've got kids to pay for, doesn't that sort of need to, or doesn't that generally fall by the wayside? I think it's a great point. Look, the 70-hour um, working week, I think, did pose the point of what do you get in return? Because it's one thing to work the 70 hours, but do you get more for that? Is it now the opportunity in Mr. Murphy's scenario, he's going to be giving share options to those employees that do 70 hours a week? Personally, so there's different views. I very much come from a place that I hope that my children, which are the next generation to come, don't have to work as incessantly as I did to be successful in my professional career. You know, there is this still, I would call it a little bit outdated, that we need to beast these juniors who are coming in and let them know what we suffered through. It doesn't need to be that way. We can do it better. We can do it more effectively. And look, the dawn of AI is going to fundamentally change what we know today forever. How is still being determined, but there are so many different ways that we can approach how we work, build efficiencies, which actually is the most important part of it. If we can be more efficient, we can still have the same outcome, but in essence, do it in less time. I mean, you raised two very, very interesting points there, Lucy. And there is a certainly a mood in my mind, for example, when I see juniors coming through, because I worked for a, a, new, a very... Uh, <laughs> 
a very strict, shall we say, news editor in my first job and, and, you know, came up through the school of hard knocks that, you know, and I do look at the juniors now and think maybe they need to go through that too. But on your point about whether or not our children are going to need to work, oddly enough, we're going to be discussing at 11 o'clock because Elon Musk just recently said that there was no need in the future for people to work. That is his sort of premonition from overnight. Uh, He's spoken and he said that he thinks the whole, you know, you'll be able to choose to work, you know, and you'll choose to work because of purpose. So it's really lovely how our two topics on the programme today are sort of chiming in with each other. We're going to come back to this topic in just a few minutes. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Uh, Toby, I want to talk to you about the correlation between effort and salaries, because obviously um, you'll know a lot about that from the shop floor, so to speak. Um, But Lucy and uh, Toby Simpson, thank you very much indeed. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to The Agenda and we are discussing how hard we should be working on the programme today. That is after a story involving an Indian billionaire went viral in India. Now, uh, NR Narayana Muti said young people should be ready to work 70 hours a week to help the country's development. Do you agree? 70 hours is quite a long time. And we're debating the subject on the programme now. I have two experts for our discussion. Toby Simpson, who is regional head uh, of uh, the, who is CEO rather of the recruitment firm Striver. And also Lucy Darbo, who is CEO at the Workplace Culture Consultancy that's called Together. They have joined me on the line. Toby, the, 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 but ball was with your ball. <laughs> what am I saying? The ball was in your court. It's one of those mornings. There you go. You're ready. You're, you're pickleballing it back. Um, okay, so we were talking about working longer in order to earn more money. Do you think that in this country, at least, longer hours do equal a better salary package? Is it that fair? Short answer is yes. Ooh. But probably not for the the obvious reasons. Look, the people I see, it's about progression. So you're not going to get more money for simply doing more hours than the guy next to you that particular day. In that month, you're not going to get a pay rise for that. But it's about working harder. So the people I've seen have really progressed, have done their job to a, a strong standard, but they've put their hands up to do other things. And necessarily taking on more, doing more does tend to mean more hours. And what you do is you broaden your skill set when you're doing that. You you broaden your sense of what's going on in the whole organization around you. So when you you know, when people begin to look at who are we going to move up to manage that you know, the people that have more of a, an appreciation of the different functions within their organization have always been there supporting others, tend to get promoted quicker. And with promotion comes pay rises. You become a more integral part of that organization. So, yes, it is true. Working harder does make you richer. Uh, and that does, to some extent, involve more hours. But working smarter also has, you know, a, a sort of a huge benefit as well. So, Lucy, do you think it is possible to sort of protect your work-life balance and still rise through companies? Because what if the guy next to you has got a slightly sort of different attitude and, and is just willing to put his nose to the millstone for the nose to the grindstone, rather? I'm really mixing my metaphors today, <laughs> aren't I? It's, one of, it's a Friday. We, we get it. We understand. Um, I think to Toby's point, it's kind of true. You've got a choice to make professionally in what career path you're going to take. It would be unrealistic, for example, to go into investment banking and expect to do a 35-hour week. That's just not the culture that comes with the territory of a fast-paced organization. Or if you're going to be an entrepreneur, I was at um, the Fast Company World Changing Summit 
yesterday, World Changing Ideas, and listened to um, Mohammed Balut and Musadir from Kareem and um, Mo from uh, Kitopi. And they were referencing 18 hour days, four hours of sleep. Those are choices. You know, there is a real reality of if you're going to go down that path, you're going to have to grind as an entrepreneur to do that. There are roles that do not require you to work 70 hours a week. And if financial gain is not your only reason for work, obviously you need to pay the fundamentals and, and you know, pay your rent. But there's choices to be made when you apply for roles. And I think that's where organizations need to be really clear around what are the expectations when you join. And therefore, it's up to the employee to make the decision around, do they want to rise up through the career ladder, to Toby's point, and get obviously paid fairly for that? Or are they content to stay where they are in order to have more of a work-life balance? But that a lot of the time comes down to personal choice and also organisations being really clear about their expectations of people. So what if you're a boss listening to this now and you're like, okay, I, I don't expect myself to work ridiculously long hours. I pay them a decent salary, but I still don't be, seem to be getting the productivity I need. How would you suggest those bosses can motivate their workforce, Lucy? Um, I think there's a great reference point with Parkinson's law, which you may or may not have heard of, but the premise of Parkinson's law is that time and tasks are not necessarily matched. So the longer you have, the longer a task will take. And that's a common kind of creep for a lot of people in the workplace and all through life. You know, we all know that when we did exams, there were a lot of us that crammed at the last minute, even though we had two months to prepare. So I think from a leadership perspective, managing expectations is incredibly important and is actually one of the skills that most managers aren't taught in terms of their leadership skills. So laying out expectations of output and timelines of when that's expected and then holding people to account. One of the things that happens more often is that someone doesn't deliver the output to the time agreed and there is no consequence. And I don't mean consequence of, okay, you're fired. Actually, constructive feedback, addressing what stopped that task not being able to be completed, what were the, you know, the challenges that got in the way, and how can we address that to ensure efficiency and productivity. Most of the time, people really want to do well at work. There is a small percentage that don't, but overwhelmingly, we're hardwired to want to please and achieve. So when someone isn't delivering, it's really important to understand what's behind that, because inevitably there will be really good reason, whether that's bureaucracy, whether that's personal issues, but there, there will always be a reason. And identifying that will help you be a lot more effective and efficient. So, Toby, if someone's not performing, you don't fire them, you try and work with them. Is that a, an approach that you take as well? <laughs> uh, you put them through performance management. If it works, it works. But, you know, I've always been guilty as a manager of hanging on to people too long when they could probably do better by being outside the organisation. That's and a polite way of <laughs> not having to, like, just get rid of them and then I don't have to worry about them anymore. Uh, no, absolutely not. No, <laughs> no, no you're you going to do better so outside. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nice, thanks, In Georgia. The cold. Make me seem like an absolute dragon of a <laughs> no, boss here. No, but you're not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, no, you invest so much in people on the, on, the, on the front side and bring them to where you want to be. So to just to just to you know lose people without trying to turn the situation around is 
poor economic sense as well as you know it destroys culture within an organization if you have rapid turnover and, and i would you know lucy's points are absolutely right about giving structure and direction and clear sets of expectations but the thing i think that really makes a difference and actually i think it is a problem here in the uae is a culture of transparency. If you want to get the best out of your employees, you bring them with you on the journey. You, you make them part of the team that is you know, driving towards a goal together, and then it doesn't feel like work. But there, there's a culture here of, we're the boss, the information stops here with me, they should do what I tell them to do and not ask why or when. But actually, it kind of destroys the purpose of what you're trying to achieve. Absolutely fascinating to speak to both of you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the agenda this morning. Uh, Every time I do these sort of management conversations, I realise how important it is that I am never made a manager of people. (laughs) Uh, So thank you very much to both of you. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, please do keep your comments coming. I'd love to know how many hours a week you work, whether or not you'd be willing to work longer. What would motivate you? Would it be money or would it be other sweeteners? Get in touch. But yes, it's been a great pleasure speaking to Toby Simpson, uh, who is CEO of the recruitment firm Striver, and also Lucy Darbo, who is the CEO at the Workplace Culture Consultancy Together. Welcome back to the agenda. Taking a look at a really big international story now because tech firms who build AI platforms have agreed to work with governments to test them before they're released. Uh, It's a really big move and it comes after 28 countries, including uh, the China, Australia, the US, the UK, and then obviously the group of countries, the EU. They all came together to agree that artificial intelligence, and this is their words, poses a a potentially catastrophic risk to humanity. It's called the Bletchley Declaration, uh, sorry, Declaration, and they signed it at an AI safety summit that is currently being held in the United Kingdom. And it is being billed as the very first international declaration to deal with the fast emerging technology. Now, also speaking at the event was the tech billionaire Elon Musk. He was slightly bizarrely interviewed by the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. If you watch back that whole interview. In fact, producer Jennifer Crichton did. She said it's very weird because Rishi keeps on trying to turn it into a sort of party political broadcast in the midst of sort of interviewing the billionaire Elon Musk. But anyway, Elon did get a word in edgeways and he told Rishi that he envisages a future where there is no need for humans to work. We are seeing the most disruptive force in history here. We will have the first time something that is smarter than the smartest human. And there will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job for sort of personal satisfaction, but the AI will be able to do everything. So I don't know if that makes people comfortable or uncomfortable. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, that's why, that's why I say if you, if, you, if you wish for a magic genie that gives you any wishes you want, and there's no limit. You don't have those three limits, three wish limits, nonsense. Uh, you just have many, many wishes as you want. It, it, it's both good and bad. He went on to suggest that we'll need to rethink salaries. One of the challenges in the future will be how do we find meaning in life if you have a magic genie that can do everything you want. And we won't have universal basic income, we'll have universal high income. So in some, in some sense it'll be somewhat of a leveler or an equalizer because you know, really I think everyone will have access to this magic genie. 
Such interesting stuff. Joining us now to give us his professional reaction to that conversation is Toby Walsh. He is a professor of AI at the University of New South Wales in Australia, also author of the book Machines Behaving Badly. Toby, lovely to have you join us on the line. I hope you are well. What do you think of uh, Elon Musk's comments there? Do you think working will become a an option in the future? Well, uh, good morning and happy Flag Day. Um, I think Elon is a, a, a bit optimistic and also a, a, a bit dismissive of what makes us uniquely human. Uh, we're, it's already the case that a machine makes a better cup of coffee than most people, but we prefer paying baristas, humans, to make those cups of coffee for us. They're going to they're going to remember us, have a little conversation, flirt with us, tell us a joke. Um, we're willing to pay extra for humans to do that. We're social animals at the end of the day. So um, whilst I do expect AI is going to be able to do, you know, the 4Ds, the dirty, the dull, the difficult, the dangerous, take on many unpleasant jobs in our lives. There's lots of things, looking after the elderly, looking after the young, um, education, healthcare, where I think we prefer humans. I mean, realistically, if they can come up with a robot that sort of looks like a human, feels like a human. Do you think that we would roll with that instead? Do you think, for example, we'd be happy having a, a, a robot carer looking after our elderly or, or our children? Well, I know who I want when I get old. I want a, a human who's going to, yeah. uh, I can talk to. I don't actually want a robot, even if it's dressed up to look like a human. So um, I think those are the thing that we learned through the pandemic, you know, amongst all the pain was that we missed each other's company. That's what we're, that's what's important to us. We're social animals as much as we're intelligent animals. What's so interesting about what's coming out of this big summit in the United Kingdom is the amount of negative headlines. You know, there really is a sort of ominous sense of a storm brewing. Would you agree that that is the view that we should have of artificial intelligence, of, of a, an existential threat, effectively? Well, when, when people ask me the question, should you be nervous or should you be excited, I say you should be both. Um, you saw at the end of those headlines you just had um, a wonderful use of AI to help um, diagnose glycoma, something that people unnecessarily go blind for. Um, equally, um, I am rather fearful what's going to happen, say, in the upcoming US presidential election. We've seen what happens with social media. That should have been a wake-up call because we're now going to put on top of that social media, that reach, um, very persuasive AI tools deep fakes that are going to really perhaps potentially swing the outcome of that of that election again. How about the use of AI in in other sort of deadly situations? Because they're, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll say that phrase again, you know, all of these countries in the Bletchley Declaration agreed that artificial intelligence poses a potentially catastrophic risk to humanity. How do you perceive that catastrophic risk? How do you think that would come about? Well, one could be very positive because previous, in the lead up to that summit, people were talking about existential risk, the end of humanity. So they've actually downgraded the forecast now from existential to just merely catastrophic. So let's let, let's be optimistic. Then, Someone's been having fun with a thesaurus, haven't they? Let's be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, I mean, there are. I mean, the, the, the overthrow of our democracy, the 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 rise of authoritarian states, the way that it's going to transform war. I mean, we, we, we see that in the Ukraine. Um, the Ukraine has, has developed, has built its own 
autonomous drones that it's using to defend itself. I mean, in that case, you know, many people would say, well, that's a, that's a, a very worthy um, fight. It's an existential fight, fight for the Ukrainians, for their, for their homeland, for their very existence. Um, and so um, maybe that's a good thing. But what happens when the world is teeming with such robots that are uh, being used against civilians and women and children? That's a, that's a very frightening world to think about. Do you think this, the sort of, I call it the Terminator concern. I think, I don't think anyone else calls it that. I think that's just me. Do you, you know, do you think there is any risk of the robots, quote, turning on us? Well, I think we have to entertain that as a very distant possibility. I mean, it's not clear that it's going to violate any laws of science that we know about. But at the moment, robots um, have no desires of their own. They, they do exactly what we tell them to. And it's it's always a malevolent human behind whatever mischief happened. Um, and so it's malevolent humans. These are very powerful tools, though, that amplify the ability of those malevolent humans to do harm. And that's something that we should be concerned about. Um, I'm not concerned at the moment, at least in the, in the near future, that the machines are going to go off and decide things themselves. It's humans always that are behind those decisions. Now, you are a professor in artificial intelligence and you are sitting there quite happily doing this interview with me. You sound calm. You're not running for the hills and finding a cave to live in. Um, so, so are we, you know, are you glass half full or glass half empty? Do you think we're going to be okay? Well, <laughs> or are you, or are you, or are you zooming from a cave? It just looks nicer than I, than I can tell. <laughs> No, I'm, I, I'm going to say both. I mean, when people say I'm, I'm a pessimistic or optimistic, I'm saying I'm both. I'm, uh, in the short term, I'm somewhat pessimistic. I think the world is, the next 10 or 20 years is going to be a very bumpy passage, not not just because of technological disruption that things like AI are bringing, but because of all the other things. I mean, the, the climate emergent, uh, emergency, the um, global insecurity that we see, the financial headwinds that our economies are going through increasing inequality, rise of authoritarianism. There's, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's depressing to listen to the news these days. And indeed, I think many of us probably should listen to less news because it's not good for our mental health. Um, and so there are, you know, it's going to be a very bumpy ride. But equally, the only hope I have is that technology is going to help us um, adapt to these changes, help us deal, for example, with the climate emergency. Um, that uh, in the long term, it has always been that technology has brought great bounty into our lives, has increased our life expectancy, doubled our life expectancy, even in the developed world, um, brought great wealth, allowed us to live like kings and queens of 200 years ago. We have, you know, machines in our our homes that that uh, wash our clothes and make our food and do things that we used to have servants for. So technology has always um, come to our rescue to deal with the problems that are afflicting the world. And that, that's why I am in the longer term optimistic. Professor Toby Walsh, a professor of AI at the University of New South Wales, author of the book Machines Behaving Badly. Thank you very much indeed for your time. I won't pack the solar charger and the water purification tablets yet. I will remain on the radio feeling uh, much reassured by that. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yes, welcome back to the show. We are discussing artificial intelligence this morning. That is after 20 countries plus the EU signed up to a document called the Bletchley Declaration. Declaration. 
It sounds like something from a movie, doesn't it? The Bletchley Declaration. It's essentially, uh, you have China, the US, the UK, all of those EU countries all signed up after they agreed that artificial intelligence poses a potentially catastrophic risk to humanity. So... Do we think that a document like this, an agreement like this, can make artificial intelligence safe? Does it need to be made safe? You know, are they right with this sort of conclusion that it's potentially catastrophic? I'm joined now to get a little bit of analysis by Dr. Caitlin Bentley. She's a lecturer in AI education at King's College London, joining me very early in the morning in the United Kingdom. So (laughs) thank you very much for your time, Dr. Bentley. Can I get your reaction first to this day? declaration. Thanks so much for inviting me as well. Um, I think it's a positive step for international cooperation and to recognize that these are risks that we need to monitor and evaluate and uh, improve on the way that we design and develop uh, artificial intelligence. So a good step in the right direction. Of course, it's not exactly legally binding, is it? But they did get the tech companies to make an agreement as well. Yes, although um, the the safety summit has been a very closed event. Uh, You'll notice that not all countries were involved. You'll also notice that uh, tech companies had a very large and prominent role. And a lot of the discourse has been uh, dominated by their views and uh, their policies around safety. Um, And as an academic uh, who has been working in the area of artificial intelligence for the better part of a decade, as well as many colleagues and uh, our doctoral students at King's College, we've been working in these areas for a long time. um, And we must acknowledge that there has been a lot of progress in safe and trusted AI um, that hasn't really uh, been integrated into the perspectives being seen um, through the safety summit. Um, and that's why uh, Responsible AI UK, we participated in organizing an AI fringe series in which we opened it up to the public um, and got civil society uh other uh, businesses, academics, the public involved in really having conversations around what makes AI safe and trustworthy. I suppose the argument that, you know, turkeys wouldn't vote for Christmas, it, it, you know, is a similar that, you know, AI companies aren't necessarily going to vote for restrictive regulations. You know, the two seem rather similar in that situation. I mean, obviously, safety is one element of concern. Um, but are there, is there anything else that, that sort of gives you the heebie-jeebies when it comes to the way AI is being managed? Um, well, just the, the large focus on existential threats, I, Although it is a significant concern that we should be thinking about now, I do agree with that. However, the the, the shorter term around misinformation, public awareness, and uh, decision making over um, how these technologies and systems are integrated into our lives, um, that's a, a more pressing and important issue um, that I think we need to be focused on at the moment. And um, rather than focusing only on safety, we also have to be thinking about risks in terms of how diverse people in diverse places will face different risks um, in very different ways. And so we really do need to be able to open up 
these conversations and to raise public awareness so that it's not just um, a very narrow set of concerns that are being addressed. Yeah, I mean, equitable access is going to be so important. And I have to admit, it seems very unlikely at the moment, you know, considering what we see around the world now. Elon Musk said in that in, at the meeting yesterday that he thinks in the long term, it's going to be a great leveller. He talked about a universal, not basic income, but a universal good income. Do you agree that that will be the conclusion of AI? Uh, look, technology uh, disrupts societal progress, but it does not solve our problems. The only way that we will ensure that AI benefits everyone is if we, we have strong public policies that redistribute the benefits of AI and ensures that the AI that's being developed addresses our societal needs and concerns and aspirations, um, uh, pressing complex issues like uh, climate change. We really need to focus our energies on um, contributing positively to these areas. Um, and that uh, really takes policy and regulation. And maybe a few less uh, sort of headline grabbing declarations. Dr. Caitlin Bentley, an absolute pleasure to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, Dr. Bentley is a lecturer in AI education at King's College London. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai I 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Lovely to have you with us here on the agenda. This week, the UAE announced a finance scheme that's going to impact the thousands of us who get an end of service gratuity. It's a savings retirement plan, and it's for people working in the private and free zone sectors. And it enables people to invest their end of service benefits as they earn them. Now, the scheme doesn't have a minimum salary requirement, and it is voluntary. Addressing a media briefing on Wednesday, Dr. Abdul Rahman Al-Alwa, who is Minister of Human Resources and Emiratization, said that this scheme will only cost employers, not employees. They will be benefiting from the returns that they will be gaining from the investment into this scheme. The employees are not liable to pay uh, the employer if they decide optionally to participate. Then they are per law obliged to participate and pay those dues without any impact on the wages of their employees. Okay, so does that mean you should sign up? I'm joined now by financial independence coach Steve Cronin. He is the founder of Dead Simple Saving. Steve, I think we sort of knew that this was coming, didn't we? We did, absolutely. It's been in the works for a while. And generally, it's a positive thing. Um, I've seen lots of people in my time in Dubai who missed out on their gratuity because they really fell out with their boss or their company went bankrupt. And this is a way that not only will it protect your money as you stay with the company over the years, but also it should grow your money at least in pace with inflation, hopefully a lot more. Should there be any concerns about who is managing your money if you are choosing to invest it? So so there's an interesting aspect about choice and and, and uh, uh, as far as I understand, like it's voluntary for companies, but if the company decides that all its employees up to a certain level are going to invest, then you may find up find your money invested. And um, there is going to be a range of fund managers who will look after this money for you. It's not going to be your boss, so that's <laughs> that's one relief. 
but um, the the criteria are not hugely strict. I mean, you need to have a billion dirhams of assets under management, and you need to have been managing money for three years. Now, you know, if your heart surgeon's been managing money for three years, uh, is, uh, sorry, been been uh, doing surgery for three years, is that is that reassuring? Um, so, so um, I think there will be some excellent fund managers out, out there, um, but we could start to see some smaller ones come in, and uh, you know, maybe maybe that's. That's less than ideal. I think time will tell whether this is a problem or not. Interestingly, they're also saying you may have to invest a percentage in the UAE market uh, and the UAE economy, a uh, small percentage. And um, that could be interesting as well, whether it, it gives a little bit, bit of a boost or adds a bit of volatility to, to your portfolio. Who will be deciding on the fund manager? Will you be able to decide on a, on a person-by-person basis or will your company get to decide? So as far as we can see right now, you will have a choice of funds provided by the fund manager, but your employer will choose the fund manager. So there will be a, a, a list of fund managers that are approved by the regulator, and then your employer will choose one of those um, fund managers, and then they will provide a range of different funds. They have to have a capital guarantee fund where you, you can't lose any money, you can only gain it. Uh, you have to have a Sharia compliant fund. And then you have a few other funds of different levels of risk. Um, but again, it's it's what's under the hood that matters. And for me, like what's been completely missing so far is any discussion around fees. And it's fees that will make or break this. Um, so if there's a charge to be invested, then um, uh, you know, as all asset managers do charge, if those fees are quite high, it could really eat into the growth of your um of your fund. And therefore, if you're deciding whether to make voluntary contributions, you really have to look at the fees versus how how cheap or expensive it is to invest your money elsewhere outside of the scheme. So clearly a very grown up decision needs to be made here. But as far as the alternative, which is just receiving your gratuity as a lump sum at the end of your employment, is this saving scheme a much better option? Yes, I think it, I think it is most likely a much better option. I think time will tell, but I think it's okay to, to take the plunge on this um, for, for the first year or so. I think you should be on top of HR to be really satisfied that they are clear on what they're doing, what the positives and negatives are, and that they've identified any potential problems, that they've got a good fund manager looking after your money. Um, there's a decent range of funds uh, you, that offer you globally diversified options. You're not just based on, on, in the region or, or in the country. And uh, and then I think everything will be OK. Yeah. Steve, always great to have you join us on the line. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Steve Cronin there, the founder of Dead Simple Saving and a financial independence coach. We're looking to get him on again soon, maybe to do a bit more of a, a Q&A. But Steve, for the meantime, thanks so much for your time. Now it is being billed as the Beatles' last song. I know it's true It's all because of you And if I make it through It's all called 
now and then, and it's been 45 years in the making. And those first bars that you just heard were written by John Lennon originally as a demo with just the vocals and the piano. And he recorded it on a cassette in 1978. Now, after his death, his widow Yoko Ono gave the recording to the remaining Beatles. And the song was finally completed last year. That's more than four decades later. All four Beatles feature on the track and it will be the last credited to Lennon, McCartney, Harrison and Starr. What do you think of it? Is that the first time you've heard it? I heard it for the first time last night and I have to admit I found it really poignant. Uh, But we wanted to get a professional's view. So we got in touch with forensic musicologist Dr Joe Bennett who's a professor at Berklee College for Music and this is his reaction. Like so many musicians I've been a lifelong Beatles fan you know I was literally listening to She Loves You and trying to work out the notes on the piano when I was four years old. So their life journey has been longer than my life journey. The first emotional reaction on a personal level is just excitement. I'm sure in the same way as millions of fans around the world with this idea of a new song coming pretty much out the blue. You know, we knew that this demo existed of now and then, and it's been around on the internet for some time. But we had no idea that the Beatles were actually intending to remake it and to actually record something that, for the last time probably in history, has all four Beatles performing on it. So now that you've heard it, do you think that it fits in with their previous albums? I think it really does. There's a a little bit of criticism that came about in the time of Real Love and Free as a Bird that came out in the 90s with the anthology project that some people said everything sounds like a Jeff Lynne track because he was so involved in it. I think that's rather unkind because, you know, the Beatles went through so many different sonic identities in their career from the sort of beat music, harmonica-driven songs like Love Me Do in the in the early 60s, and their very first single released in 1962, right through to the, the epics that we know from later in their career, Hey Jude, Long and Winding Road, experimental stuff like I Am the Walrus. You know, there's a Beatles song for every taste, I always say, because they took their influences from so many different artists and areas of musical history. So for me, it stands up there with anything else in the canon. And what I love about the new recording is they've been just as adventurous as they were being around the time of, well, particularly the Abbey Road album. You know, they're adding string section, they're adding key changes. They're being really super creative with what was some beautiful but very basic source material that John Lennon ended up leaving them with this 1970s cassette demo on which the whole track is based. Yeah, I mean, that is what is amazing, is that thanks to AI, they managed to clean up this tape and isolate John Lennon's voice and obviously improve the quality. But does that mean that basically this song is mostly by Paul McCartney? No, I don't think so. And in fact, I've been doing a bit of analysis on it. In songwriting terms, what John Lennon left them with was essentially two four-line verses with a little chord loop under, which is the main hook. It's the first thing we hear in the song after the intro. And now and then, you know, as he's rocking backwards and forwards between two chords. So it's very much what you'd expect to hear in a songwriter's early demo, a melodic idea, some very simple lyrics, 
for all we know, they could have been dummy lyrics because they're they're slightly generic in places. But I think that adds to the rather philosophical nature of the overall effect now you know we've so lyrics like if we could start again it's all because of you we've heard those lines in other songs before but it's an early draft and it is what they had to work with and actually on a bar for bar analysis it's ended up rather beautiful it's a very balanced lennon mccartney composition John handles the verse, which is then repeated because he only left them with those, so their verse two is, in fact, John singing verse one again. Paul McCartney writes the chorus, which also uses the word now and then. And then there's a whole sort of exploratory section when they go off into a new key section. There's an unexpected chord of D minor and these strings swell in, and then they just go into a new sonic landscape as the Giles Martin arranged orchestral recording session adds further and further to the mix. So no, I think it's a beautifully balanced composition that contains, you might say, a 50-50 contribution from both composers. And that's more than you can say for a lot of the Beatles catalogue. Despite the original songs being always credited 50-50 to Lennon-McCartney, it was almost always one or other of them that did the bulk of the work, and it was actually rare that they collaborated fully 50-50. So in so many ways, it brings the Beatles' story to this this rather beautiful end with a really great song. I have to say that when I listened to it, and I literally listened to it minutes before doing this interview, I found it very poignant. What do you think John Lennon would have thought of it? Well, it is rather lovely that the song is called Now and Then. You know, it sort of builds in a philosophical timelessness to it. And then, of course, we hear John Lennon's voice 43 years after his death resonating out of our speakers once again. What would he have made of it? Well, I'm not a philosopher, I'm a musicologist, so I direct you to Paul McCartney's comments where he points out that the Beatles always loved playing with brand new technology. You know, they had so many technical innovations in their career. John Lennon loved processing his voice. He was an early pioneer of automatic double tracking and slapback echo. There are, there are a whole bunch of things that they were very interested in. And of course they were recording at the time when multi-track recording was proliferating in the mid sixties. So Paul McCartney himself said in the making of video about now and then, he said that John was around. He believes he absolutely would have embraced this opportunity to go for it one more time to bring everybody together and using the latest technology. Dr. Joe Bennett there, forensic musicologist and a professor at Berkeley College of Music. Please do get in touch with me and give your reaction to that final Beatles song. It's called Now and Then. You can get it on all the uh, streaming services. Uh, but I'd love to yeah, just get your impression of it. I have to say I found it incredibly poignant. Um, it sort of really made me reflect back on the last uh, sort of 40 years, I suppose. It was recorded in 78 and I was born in 79. So maybe that's why I sort of had that sense of, of history shifting. I think that was what it was anyway. Awesome to have you with us. We're going to talk sports now. I've got Chris McCarty waiting in the wings. He's on the telephone line today. Uh, how are you, Chris? Are you a bit... Was there sport last night? Are you sleepy? Is that why you're not here with me? Wrong line. Oh, sleepy. Good morning, Georgia. I'm just in and out of meetings, so 
I've actually Ooh. taken myself out of the cafe. I'm in a parking lot, so if you hear some horns, you will know that it's nothing to do with me. It's just the fact that people can't get parked. You've got to stop standing in their way. You know, you can't. You can't make your. You're not. You can't act like a bollard. You need to move to the side. Yeah, you're right. I will move my way to the pavement now. You're, you're absolutely right. I was a bit silly there. My apologies. Look at the McCarty bollard. Let's all with cricket. There's no stopping India. My goodness me, they're doing rather well. But then you said Sri Lanka were going to lose. Yeah, listen, seven wins from seven. What more can I say? They absolutely smashed Sri Lanka yesterday. 357 for eight India made. And then they got to work pretty quickly. They skittled Sri Lanka out for just 55. Yes, you heard that right, just 55. So a massive victory. 302 run victory. The biggest win in Cricket World Cup history. They're seven from seven. Next for India, you can make a very good case to say the side that may just be equipped to stop them winning this cricket ball cup on Sunday in South Africa. But on this evidence, I've said it for the last few weeks, Georgia, it's going to take something pretty special to stop India from winning this cricket world cup on home soil. We've got Netherlands versus Afghanistan today in the never-ending 30, 30 ma- 35 matches now? Yeah, we're up to 35. I think you're right yeah. there. Or 30. Yeah, you're right. 34 yesterday, 35 today. Uh, I've lost count myself. But yes, Afghanistan taking on the Dutch. Uh, you, you've got to say India have been the big story, given the fact they've been perfect thus far, but not far behind. As we story of Afghanistan, they've beaten England, they've beaten Pakistan, they've beaten Sri Lanka. And you've got to say you make them favourites to beat the Dutch to maintain their hopes of reaching at the semi-finals of this Cricket World Cup. And regardless of who wins this World Cup, if Afghanistan make it to the knockout stages, I think it's safe to say that would be the story, no matter what happens, of this Cricket World Cup. It's fairy tale stuff and it's been fantastic to watch. It has indeed. Now, looking ahead to the weekend, because I think there's not one but two sports shows at the weekend now. Uh, so you'll be getting lots of coverage of matches, for example, like Craven Cottage tomorrow. Everyone's going to yes. be eyes on there for Fulham. Yeah, again, indeed. Uh, all eyes on there for, for Man United more than anything else. Of course, Eric Ten Hag, the embattled Eric Ten Hag. It's a must win. It's as simple as that. By hook or by crook, Man United need to pick up three points in the early kickoff in the English Premier League tomorrow because if they do not and if United are rolled over pretty handsomely by Fulham then I think we may well be talking this time next week about Manchester United in the market for a new manager that is how terminal this decline is becoming it is a crisis at Old Trafford so yes I will be hiding behind my sofa 4.30 tomorrow afternoon it's Fulham against Man United and that kick starts a barnstorming weekend of sport. You've got Pakistan, New Zealand in the cricket, and I've already alluded to it. Sunday, the big one, it's India against South Africa. It's never-ending, Georgia. Just settle in, sit on that sofa, and let it wash over you. It's going to be a fantastic weekend of sport. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia now, because you've spotted a really interesting study about the amount of money that they are investing into the sporting world, basically. Yeah, it's fantastic. A new uh, survey has come out. It's uh, a survey entitled Play the Game, and it's revealed that Saudi Arabia, over the course of the last 12, 18 months, they've now got up to 312, 312 Huge sponsorship deals on the table, encompassing 21 different sports. And I found the fascinating line from this study. It comes from a Danish institute uh, that shows that 139 of those 312 sponsorships are directly funded 
by the public investment fund. Saudi are not messing around. We've known this. We've been talking about it a lot over the last 12 months or so. They're serious about their investment in sport. And of course, this is going to culminate. We're just waiting for official confirmation, but it will culminate. The 2030 vision, four years later, the cherry on top of the icing, on top of the cake, will be the hosting of that 2034 FIFA World Cup. Whether you like it or not, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, from a sporting standpoint, very much here to stay. I think it's good news for the region. Chris McCarty, a pleasure to have you join us on the line. As always, our head of sport here at Dubai Eye, our head of sport for ARN, also co-host of your drive time show, Off Script. He will be back on air at 5pm this afternoon. Very much looking forward to that. Lots of comments coming through, by the way, on the amount of hours that people here in the UAE are working each week. Ibrahim says, in his view, working longer hours nowadays does likely mean no increase in pay or career growth unfortunately only that you get your bosses used to you being available all the time which is actually counterproductive in his view people should work smarter not just longer be smart and you can get ahead meanwhile Cameron says i don't agree 72 70 hours it's almost 14 hours every day even if we get more money we're going to spoil our health and the money that we'll earn will actually end up spending on our health so a big no to this 70 hours Meanwhile, Eunice says, I've worked in both site and designing. I've worked more than 72 hours a week on a site. It wasn't as exhausting as working 45 hours a week in an office. Eunice, I have to say, I'm really surprised by that. Very interesting stuff. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.